in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are all here on earth to help others. What on earth the others are here for, I don't know. These words made famous by W.H. Auden, they originally come from a music hall comedian, capture the danger of always wanting to be the one serving and never the one served. If I am always the one serving, I force those around me to be ever grateful recipients. It's a relationship that places me at the center of the moral universe every bit as much as good old-fashioned selfishness. Jesus sets before us a very different vision of servant leadership, a vision that has mutuality at its heart. Leaders may indeed be called to serve others, but also need to be open to being served. There is therefore a mutual vulnerability, a sharing of control and of responsibility. Jesus' own humility as a leader is manifest both in his willingness to be the servant of all and his willingness to allow others to minister to him often in situations that cause surprise or even scandal. For example, when a woman breaks a bottle of expensive perfume over his feet and washes them with her hair. In the ministry of Jesus, the most marginalized, lepers, women who would be deemed ritually unclean, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, are not just passive beneficiaries. Jesus recognizes them as actors, as tellers of uncomfortable truths and disruptors of the status quo. Each of them comes crying to him for healing and for justice, with courage and with tenacity. It is these qualities, not servility, or excessive deference that Jesus praises as true faith. For as Jesus says, those on the margins can often see the truth most clearly. In Matthew chapter 11, he prays, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. In Jesus' eyes, the poorest and most marginalized are not simply recipients of help. They are bearers of God's truth to the wider community. Moreover, as Jesus observes, they are very often the people who show forth God's sacrificial generosity. Standing in the temple, he contrasts the ostentatious but proportionately tiny giving of the rich with the offering of the widow, whose small coin is all that she has. 
that pattern of a church which is of and not just with or for the poorest in society continues in the extraordinarily fruitful ministry of the Apostle Paul, planting new congregations across the Roman Empire. As he reminded the Christians in Corinth in our second lesson, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In the eyes of the world, the poorest and most vulnerable may seem to be trapped in dependency, clients of benefactors and of bureaucracies. But in the economy of God, they are the source of transformation, the ones he raises up again and again to be the leaders in his kingdom. What the world considers peripheral turns out to be the center of his transforming work. In biblical terms, this is the pattern of God's engagement with his people from the very beginning. Israel's election as a people enslaved and marginalized but loved by the Lord of hosts is to shape their interactions with those beyond their community. Remembering that they were once fragile and vulnerable, God's people are told in our first lesson that they must love the stranger, for they too were strangers in the land of Egypt. We live in an era of deep distrust of institutions, both political and religious, fairly or unfairly, there is a sense that the established centers of power are detached from the lives of ordinary citizens. And this climate creates fertile soil for divisive and extremist populisms, movements that offer simplistic solutions to people's sense of alienation and discontent, movements that offer an all too familiar array of scapegoats, usually religious, ethnic, or social strangers to blame for society's ills. But how, I wonder, would it affect our attitude to such populism if we stood where today's readings invite us to stand? If we thought of the poorest and most marginalized, not as hard to reach or the objects of our charity, but as the very heart of God's transforming work. From that perspective, the problem with today's climate is not that it is too populist, but that its populism is dishonest. In reality, those perpetrating a rhetoric of division and scapegoating are not rooted in the lives and communities they seek to inflame. All too often, the voices of the poorest and most marginalized 
remain absent from those debates. They are spoken for rather than heard. As Pope Francis has observed, the word populism has different meanings in different contexts. He says, in Latin America, populism means that the people, for example, people's movements, are the protagonists. They are self-organized. When I started to hear about populism in Europe, I didn't know what to make of it until I realized that it had a different meaning. So Pope Francis is contrasting an authentic populism in which the people are the protagonists with a false populism in which instead they seek refuge from their fears in a charismatic leader. Such false populism does not grow out of their experience or agency. It divides, but it also disempowers. It leaves ordinary citizens as largely passive spectators, at most as cheerleaders behind charismatic leaders detached from the realities of their daily lives. We see an authentic and inclusive populism in the work of groups like Citizens UK. Their broad-based community organizing is based on the institutions local people are already part of, in which they are already learning to relate and negotiate across difference, to build and tend a common life. Community organizing is best known for its campaigns for a living wage, affordable housing, a more welcoming attitude to refugees. And the changes that organizing has secured, many of them with the active cooperation of the public servants in this congregation, are of course hugely significant in building more just and harmonious communities. But the most important feature of organizing is its focus on the action of the very people who policymakers often call hard to reach. For from the perspective of those people, the world looks very different. They experience power as something that is hard to reach. But when they find a way of organizing together that can make a difference, they are willing to give sacrificially of their time and energy. That is why so many of London's churches have become involved in community organizing. They are not just a voice for the voiceless. They are becoming places where the voiceless get to speak and to act for themselves. I think of Lucy, whose church helped her and her family fight eviction from their flat. At a prayer meeting soon afterwards, she meditated with others on words in the gospel be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, and on St. Peter's exhortation to be hospitable. Lucy gave thanks for what she had experienced, and in turn, she and her family felt moved to give a home to another woman who, felt, who faced homelessness in their small flat. I think of Colleen, who had been trapped in spiraling debt because of the exploitative practices of Wonga, and who despite the shame associated with indebtedness, 
was willing to stand up and tell her story as part of Citizens UK's campaign to put a cap on payday lending. The ripples of her courageous witness and that of so many other citizens continue to be felt today. I also think of Abdul, who through the living wage campaign was brought face to face with the head of HSBC, whose office he cleaned on a poverty wage. Sir John, Abdul said, we work in the same office, but we live in different worlds. A year later, the bank began to pay Abdul a genuinely living wage, beginning a movement which continues to grow and flourish. As civic leaders, you will be confronted every day with demands for new policies, new initiatives, to meet people's needs and to solve people's problems. Weighing up the merits of such proposals is an important part of your work, an important part of what we are praying for today. But what is most significant about the stories of Lucy, Colleen and Abdul is that in Pope Francis' words, they have become the protagonists. With thousands of other people, often in London's most deprived and diverse neighbourhoods, people who are now organising together to tend and transform their common life. Their action embodies a truly authentic and inclusive populism. No new policy or new initiative will on its own address the malaise in our democratic order. The rise of false populisms which divide and scapegoat is a symptom of the alienation of an increasing number of citizens from the democratic process, from the building and tending of a common life. In our day, as in the days of Moses and of Jesus, God speaks and acts most powerfully and truthfully through the lives of the poorest. Far from simply being problems which need policy solutions or clients who need help, they are the agents God chooses to place at the heart of his work of transformation. If we are to be servant leaders, we must start by being open to the truths which they tell, open to the gifts which they bring, to build a common life in which they too are the protagonists. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.